Quarks and galaxies and trees and toilet flushes and quasars. And you're like, what the fuck? How does his mind spontaneously work? It's just so weird. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week, we are jumping back into the enigmatic, oddly nerdy, but also very philosophically astute book by Marcus Gabriel, Fields of Sense. We're going to be jumping into chapter 4. Four. So if you have been following along, wonderful. We're going to pick that back up. If you have not been following along, that's okay. We're going to give a brief recap of his project up to date. And then it should actually make sense. As a matter of fact, I think this chapter is actually very clear in its weird way. I mean, Troy actually messaged me and was like, holy shit, bro, this chapter is so weird, but so awesome. And it is. Um, so I think that this, maybe even more than some of the other chapters, would will make total sense as a standalone so if you're just jumping in now it'll totally make sense we'll catch you up to speed and then of course we will expand at the same time we're going to do both how is that possible how are we both going to be able to distill the information for newbies but also expand for people who've walked along the whole time is that just because we're just great educators troy we're all about the dialectical process dude (laughs) that's right so yeah so that's going to be coming up in our main segment but first, we want to mention that if you want to support us in a tangible way, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There you can get access to goodies like bonus episodes, newsletters, extra shitty minutes, extra sticky leaves, and the ability to vote on our next patron-sponsored episode. So again, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to those goodies. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's not delay any further. Let's jump right into it. No BS this week. It's time for the shitty minute. This is the portion of the show where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that's pissing us off. So, Troy, I know that the world is on fire. It's chaos. There's an election coming up. Shit, it might already have happened by the time this episode... Oh, no. It will be just around the corner by the time this episode comes out. Um, What else is happening? There's a fucking pandemic still. There's an economic long depression that we maybe never got out of since... There's just so much... To rant about. Plus, probably shitty music is being made. There's dumbass TV shows. <laughs> Fucking social media is driving people mad. What could you possibly draw from to make you angry? What's up, dude? I know, dude. There's some option paralysis when it comes to <laughs> shitty minutes these days. Is it is it possible that there's so many options for bad stuff that you're just like in a daze of kind of, I don't know, placid stupor or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you could just, like, the shitty minute is gestures broadly, right? And that's just the end. <laughs> and, you know, I came into this, we talked about how we have, like, these little uh, notes on our phones where we keep track of potential yeah. shitty minutes and sticky leaves when we think of them. And I had gone into today, the day of recording, thinking I was going to talk about some of the debate that's happened in the past week or two since Trump got COVID about whether or not it's... Uh, right to wish uh, you know, harm or ill on Trump without actually engaging in doing so, like causing it, right? Mm-hmm. Is it okay to wish that the president dies of COVID or whatever? Mm. And I was like, 
I had a take on that and I wanted to talk about how stupid a lot of that debate is and that if you can't just laugh a little bit at the person who ties someone to the train tracks themselves getting hit by the train when they get their foot stuck in the tracks, which is basically <laughs> what the White House all getting COVID was. Yeah. That you're just inhuman. You need to let yourself laugh a little bit. And that's what anybody's doing. Is this your version <laughs> of the trolley problem? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, but I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to talk about that shit. That's just too obvious. And you already got my take. I said it in 20 seconds and we're done. What I do want to talk about is something totally not serious because we all need a little bit of not serious shitty minute right now, right? Perfect. No one wants to hear more shitty minutes about the things that they're seeing everywhere else on the internet. Perfect. Instead, I want to talk about the fact that goddamn Dune got canceled. Well, not canceled, but moved back a year. So for those unaware, famous French, French-Canadian French or just French director, Denis Villeneuve. Do you know if he's French-Canadian or just French? I do believe he's French-Canadian. That makes sense. Um, yes, he is. I don't know. I don't know why it makes. I don't know why it makes sense, but it just does. He's North American, so I guess it makes sense why he has a he's from North Quebec. American career. Yeah, there you go. Famous director of films like Arrival and Enemy, and what else has he done? Sicario. Sicario, right? The the new Blade Runner. Oh yeah, Blade Runner twenty four ninety, which I think is his best film. Um, Famed French direct, French Canadian director Denis Villeneuve is mastering the next or the uh, new installment or reboot or whatever of Dune, right? Um, last made by David Lynch in the eighties, and I I really enjoy Dune. I read the the book several years ago. It's kind of considered like the classic sci fi novel in North American twentieth century sci fi, I guess. Right. Uh, not a super fan or anything. Tried to read some of the books, couldn't super get into them, but I really, really enjoyed the, the original. And it's, cl- it's a classic for a reason. And as much as David Lynch's version, have you seen David Lynch's version from the 80s? Nope. It's weird as fuck, first of all, in the in a very David Lynchian way. It has a ch- its own charm, and given that how weird it is, and given that Sting is in it, in some of the one of like the weirdest music film crossovers to ever see. Is the, um, is the soundtrack really good since it was Brian Eno? Oh, shit. I don't know. I didn't even know Brian Eno did the score. Well, I don't think he, the, he did all of it, but it, I guess he's included on the soundtrack. Dude, I'm just going down a Wikipedia hole while you're talking right now. So That's interesting. I didn't know that. I might yeah. have to go back and, and check And I know that's out. your boy, so. Oh, yeah. Eno's my man. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's got its own charm, but it wasn't really a... It wasn't like it wasn't sort of a a fleshed out version of Dune. It was like Lynch's kind of weirdo version of it, right? Um, so I oh, I looked forward to the idea of having a real adaptation of Dune that kind of captures uh, its own unique and original spirit. And I thought you know Denis Villeneuve, given what he's done with Blade Runner, um, seems like the absolute best candidate to do this in an appropriate way. And so. Like so much so that I think that Denis Villeneuve doing Dune could be like not quite this big in terms of cultural influence, but it could be the biggest sci-fi franchise since Star Wars. Uh, just in terms of uh, maybe not in terms of cultural ubiquity, but in terms of quality and like generally recognized um, love and affection for something like that. Right. Hmm. That said, the counter argument would be Denis Villeneuve is a niche director 
So he may not make it with cultural impact in mind, but instead with pure unadulterated quality in mind with no, mm. with no recognition of a need to, um, I don't want to say dumb down because that's an inappropriate term, I think, but you know, popularize the appeal, popularize. Yeah, popularize something like yeah. that. Okay. All that said, I was very excited about doing, it was supposed to come out this Christmas. Um, I already missed out on seeing Tenet in the theaters. Hopefully that comes back. I know it didn't get as good a reviews as Nolan's, most of Nolan's films, but I'm still bummed I need to see that in theaters. And I really hope at some point it comes back once COVID's over in uh, about a decade and we can watch that. Not getting able to see Dune this year was a huge bummer. It was the movie I was most looking forward to of anything this year by far. And it got pushed back to next year. And that really sucks. Well, it's not like it got canceled, bro. Yeah, but getting pushed back to next year, we're probably all going to be dead by then. So it basically might as well be canceled. <laughs> it's like John Maynard Kane said, dude, in the long run, we're all dead. So you know what? They're never going to be a movie. We're all going to be dead before there's a movie. You again. know, whenever Climate I hear... change will get us before Dune comes out is what I'm saying. Whenever I hear Kane's full name, I think of Tool. Yeah, it's hard not to, right? <laughs> yeah, I, so I automatically get distracted. I was actually, when you said that, I was like, wait, did Maynard say that? <laughs> I was like, is that, a, is that a perfect circle song? I was like, I don't listen to them. I only know tools. So maybe that's It's why. also, yeah, three, uh, like, like three first names almost. Right? <laughs> it is. John Maynard Kames, Maynard James Keenan. Like, come on, dude. It's, it's way too similar. Just like a formally, it's structurally, it's the same. Yeah, they start with the same letters. That's fucking weird. <laughs> it's too weird. All right, so, so here's my thing. I don't understand the whole Dune thing. Like ever, like I really like Jodorowsky or however you say his name, Jodorowsky, right? Have I really you seen like the documentary on his on his version or him yes. trying to make Dune. It's yes. great. Yes, it? that is amazing. And I really like El Topo, Holy Mountain. So like I get how batshit crazy his Dune would have been. And I this is what I wonder. And having not read the novels and having not really got been invested in the films because I never saw uh, Lynch's Dune and I don't know anything about like you know the projects of you know I know Ridley Scott was trying to do it at one point all these other people and they've been trying to do remakes for years and years and years it always comes up in like the Hollywood Reporter and shit like that that some new person some new studio some new production company is attached whatever right but I know nothing about it and so I wonder is most of the hype due to the folklore surrounding Jodorowsky who is like his Dune was supposed to be the masterpiece. And so what I wonder is, is there not like this myth-making that is surrounding this thing that makes it, uh, that, that raises our anticipation, but actually the content of the project itself isn't all that special. Like, I just can't help think that. And that's just simply because I am so ignorant of the actual content. But that's where I come from. So I'm kind of like, I don't get all that excited because I just wonder if it's just a bunch of hubbub. No, I don't think so. So here's how I'd analogize it. Uh, there is a, a, a mythology, I think, in the like, cinematic world to, oh, my God, if you could conquer Dune, you'd be like the greatest right. filmmaker, right? <laughs> right, right, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and in cinematic circles, I think there's that mythology that's there. And so there's like an added element, like mythological element in terms of no one can master Dune, which also kind of artistically or poetically corresponds to the fact that Dune's like about living on a desert planet that's contrary to human nature. And so you, like trying to survive is impossible. Mm. Um, so it's, it's like the movie itself, or like trying to make a movie out of it is almost like living on Dune in a way. So like the, mm-hmm. the, the story itself has themes that are consonant with making a film about it, which is, you know, something that cinephiles are going to like jizzle over, right? That idea. And make documentaries about it that are more famous than 
the movie adaptations right. themselves, right? Right. So yeah, that's certainly true. But I think in the broader sense, there's there's, there's sort of a the people who are not super cinephiles but have read the books. This is the obvious like golden nugget in terms of the thing that hasn't been done yet. I mean, I think this analogy is not 100% appropriate, but there's some it's probably the most appropriate of anything in the sci-fi genre and English-speaking language. This is like if Lord of the Rings hadn't been done yet. Right? Which mm. Um, I think Lord of the Rings is probably a better artistic achievement than novels, right? Um, given both their their effect on the fantasy genre and also just the artistic quality of the writing itself, right? Yeah. Tolkien was a master. I don't think Frank Herbert is that. He's not. And, the, and Dune isn't quite that. Um, doesn't have that ubiquity in the sci-fi genre that Lord of the Rings does. But it's the closest thing, I feel like, in the English-speaking language. Maybe Asimov... Mm. Is, is closer, but even that I don't think has the dramatic elements um, that Dune has, which is more like Lord of the Rings in terms of being a huge, impactful drama. Because um, it's an epic. And then, yeah, and then there's been, you know, the fact that Herbert's son did like 20 more novels or whatever after he died and they're all supposed to suck, mm. I think didn't help <laughs> the, the thing, right? Like it's, um, it's as if like the Hobbit mo- like the Hobbit movies did to the Lord of the Rings films is kind of what Herbert's son might have done to the story. So that kind of cheapened it a bit, maybe. But the first book, I think, has that place. So there is a sense, I think, in which the anticipation is warranted. And I, and I really have a good feeling. Have you seen the trailer yet? They released a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it, but not really paying attention just when people were sharing it on Twitter. Because again, I just, like, I love Timothy Chalamet and I love uh, Villeneuve. So I'm kind of like, okay, so I'm in it because of those two figures, but, uh, you know, I just am not that excited. So I was kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll note it so that at least I can have something to talk about around the water cooler, so to speak. Yeah, I think if it turns out the way that I'm hoping that it will, I think you're going to really enjoy it. There's lots of, I mean, one of the big themes in Dune, it's a very strong environmentalist theme, combined with like a real dark tragedy um, as well so it's got i think just really unique themes for when it came out in the early 70s i think mm. um yeah but really what i wanted to talk about with you dude is the cast of this movie because i had a thesis that um villeneuve seems to have cast every different kind of hot guy <laughs> in this movie and i wanted to see if you agree with this thesis and what it what's the significance of it so first okay. of all Timothy Chalamet. He's like yep. the the dark DiCaprio in terms of what DiCaprio was in Titanic uh, era. Although, but DiCaprio right? prior to that did, you know, like, what is it, basketball stories and or basketball diaries. Um, there was some darkness. And then, of course, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Before he turned into, like, the pop celebrity, he went that, down the dark route first. So I, Yeah, I think that's how we know him, right? But I don't think Chalamet could do Titanic is the thing, right? Maybe, because he kind of, I don't know. I think he could. I think he's okay. got that levity to him. Yeah. I saw okay, it, maybe. I, we'll I, saw it I, I saw it in Little Women a little bit. You know, like the dancing scene when they're kind of rocking out. And I think so. I think he does have that lightness about him. But I know what you mean. He does. He definitely has more of a Frenchness to him. Um, <laughs> yeah, even yeah, it's though he's all a, like ennui is the lightest he gets. Yeah, yeah. Even though he's American, he's got like, and but his name is clearly not. But like, but yeah, he's definitely got more of that. Like, yeah, he's got yeah, 
the ennui for sure. Okay, who? Cool. Well, go ahead, keep going. So they've got that kind of hot guy, right? And then Jason Momoa, who's yeah, who's like, just like you know, he's a bear, steaming sick. <laughs> he's yeah, bear. right. He's he's literally steaming. Like he just walks around, steam comes off of him, right? Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous then, to see him on talk shows and shit like that because you just see the other women that are like Jesus because <laughs> he's he's just like. Like you, at that point, I become like totally a believer of evolutionary psychology, and I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> it's true. We just want to mate with the biggest and the strongest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's the classic, you know, a sexy bear, right? Yeah. But then also to be distinguished from that is Josh Brolin, who's like homeless sexy. Yeah, he's like, but he's also he's the silver fox too. Yeah, he's he's kind of grown into that. But don't you think he also has that like? Like the homeless guy who you're pretty sure is a male model underneath if you just gave him a nice shave? 100%. 100%. That's exactly right. His dad had that too. Yeah. Oh, who was his dad? Uh, I think it's James Brolin. His dad is in um, the original Amityville Horror. Oh, okay. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had that He had that too. So. Yeah, and then Oscar Isaac, who's like middle-aged suburban mom favorite dude right because he's mm. got like that unassuming kind of guy next door he's also got a personality and he's funny right but he's yeah. also super hot mm-hmm. and then who else oh yeah javier bardem who's got you know the spanish sexy dude on. dude i'm still in Skarsgård. yeah scandinavian sexy come on man you got to get a little <laughs> bit of that that old man viking love in there yeah, it's got everything, man. Homeless sexy, bear sexy, suburban mom sexy. And then Dave Bautista. And then you got Dave Bautista, who's just like, if you want the roid head, like, <laughs> that's just straight up, you know, he might not be, you might not have an intelligent conversation with him, but man, can he fucking bench press and squat. <laughs> the dude's just, I mean, Momoa can too, but Momoa's got more of, from what I can tell at least, like a a charm about him. He just oozes kind of charisma. Batista yeah, you, is just like... You expect like, him to caress you, not yeah. just, you know, destroy you. Like yeah, whereas Batista will break you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. So what's your thesis here? I don't know how they're going to execute this, but it does seem like they've just tried to get every different um, type of sexy dude. And, and can we just talk about Javier Bardem for a second? Because sure. I think he has the sexiest voice of any man alive. Really? You don't think so? I don't recall being enchanted, at least. I mean, you can't look at No Country for Old Men because he's trying to be creepy with that haircut, and you can't just isolate the voice there. <laughs> but, like, what's the what's the romantic movie that he did that I'm thinking of? Like the Vicky Cristina, whatever the fuck it's oh, called. Oh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. That was one, yeah. Yeah. Um... Just, just YouTube some Javier Bardem talking and then just uh, change the tab. Okay. All right. <laughs> so yeah. Um, oh, let's not forget mother. Right? Oh yeah, I mean, dude. He was God. <laughs> he was God. That's right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No. I. I mean. I. I love me some some Javier Javier Bardem. So, but then again, I also have a f- taste for the exotic. So you know. <laughs> Yeah, so that's my thesis, and I'm expecting that thesis to get fleshed out in some unique way in mm. this film. There will be a theme about the sexy dudes in this movie, 
I think when it's it comes funny out, how your shitty minute it. is also a sticky leaves, but then it's also a shitty minute because you're so excited about this, and there's even this like sexual tension that you want to see on display, and then that only yeah. exacerbates your shitty minute because then you get more frustrated that you have to wait. Yeah, what if what if Dune is gonna play out just like the novel, but instead of everybody fighting and dying, all the sexy dudes just start looking at each other's eyes and just have a big old gay dude orgy. <laughs> it wouldn't you there, be, there it will wouldn't be, a, be wrong. There will be a porn version of Dune. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. I mean, it would be called Poon, right? P-U-N-E? <laughs> yeah, but, but then that would be, that wouldn't be, that. that's not gay. So it has to be... <laughs> I don't uh, think that the porn the porn parody uh, titles have to actually have anything to do with what happens in the movie. That's not a necessity. It's yeah, more about uh, the parody. Email us or hit us up at Twitter. What would be the gay Dune porn title? Uh, and let us know what you all think. Yeah. Right on. Well, sweet. I guess uh, I don't know how the fuck we're supposed to transition out of talking about... <laughs> All these sexy dudes making eye contact and banging on a desert planet to now talking about philosophy. But we're going to do it for you. Yeah. Um, Quine once said that he prefers uh, desert landscapes. And he was a philosopher. So we should go into philosophy. That's not that's about what we call a segue. But instead, is anti-reductionist in character. Yeah. And that's Marcus Gabriel's Field of Sense. Uh, perfect segue. Wonderful. Take it away. Take it away, Troy. <laughs> All right. So um, it's been a little while since we did some Marcus Gabriel. Do you think it behooves us? I mean, we didn't talk about this beforehand, so I hate putting either of us on the spot. But should we talk a little bit about what this book's been about so far? Yeah. So I think and we can do in really, really, really broad strokes, right? Like let's do the conference abstract version. Basically, so far, what Gabriel is arguing against are two dominant trends, what he calls zoontological optimism and zoontological pessimism. These are ways of viewing the world that either um, completely inflate, in the case of zoontological optimism, inflate the importance of the human, or completely denigrate, which would be zoontological pessimism. Zoontological optimism might be like existentialism, phenomenology. Zoontological pessimism is what he called, or what you have called, like physicalism, right? Um, he calls it like scientism. Um, I think in this chapter he actually even called it like what did he call it? Like physicalist scientism or something like that. Yeah, he um, calls it like naturalistic. I mean, at the best, I think name for it's just something like physicalistic reductionism, because that really gets to the heart of what the project is about. It's about reducing everything that exists to a description that is physical. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Um, which we could call like a bland materialism or vulgar materialism or a brute materialism, something along those lines. And so he's trying to uh, position those two as both of them being wrong and insufficient. And partly the reason why they're both wrong and insufficient is because they both fall into what he calls ontotheology, right? They both mm, yeah. espouse metaphysics um, as being something um, that is the same as ontology. And what that means for him is that when you're talking about something, that you're talking about everything. That That is that there is an all-encompassing domain that includes the totality of reality. Ontolo zoontological optimism does that. 
uh, in its own ways, and zoontological pessimism does that in its own ways. They both do it in different ways, but they both t have this tendency to um, make claim towards the totality or make a claim towards a domain in which you can talk about how all things exist under the conditions of that paradigm. And that for him is metaphysics, that for him leads to what he calls ontotheology, and that for him is ultimately bad metaphysics and wrong. Um, if you're familiar with Heidegger, you could also understand why that would be wrong. Um, he takes up Heidegger's project, I think, in, in his critique of those things by categorizing them as ontotheology, and that's really what he's been arguing at up to this point. Does that broad strokes kind of get us to where we are? Yeah, dude, actually, I hadn't even thought about um, that's actually just a perfect way of encapsulating how this chapter sets up in that whole project so far uh, cool. in that, yeah, metaphysics is this way of having a single field of sense rather than plural fields of sense. Um, so basically one under one set of sort of descriptions to explain everything that exists. And what he's trying to do in this book and, in, and specifically in this chapter is uh, try and make arguments for or trying to develop arguments to show that that's not possible. Mm. Um, he's going to do that from, as the title of this chapter implies, looking at set theoretical ontology at the beginning. And we can talk about that a bit, but I think the latter part of the chapter is where the real meat is in talking about um, what he calls contemporary nihilism, but I think has a greater range than just what most people would think of as being contemporary nihilism. Cool. Yeah. Let me just, before we jump into this chapter, let me just read some, some quotes from the last page of the last chapter, because I think it sets up how it is that he begins chapter four, this chapter. Yeah. So the very last page of the last chapter, the last chapter was called What is Wrong with Kant and Frege? And um, one of the things he talks about here is he says, okay, so this is a quote. The meaning of existence is not settled by the universe, as there are witches, for instance in Faust, that are not part of the universe. There are hobbits, numbers, dreams, and the contents of hallucinations, governments, the past, and plans I never carried out. These objects are not unified by the further fact that they are all part of the universe, let alone studied by physics. The metaphysical prejudice in favor of physics or science in general is not only largely unjustified by its own lights, that is, it cannot be a result derived from physics, but at best can be seen as built into its heuristics, it is also irrelevant to ontology and arguably results from ontotheology, which is the identification of ontology with one's preferred metaphysics, the metaphysics of the day. Now, he moves further to this, he says, let me conclude this chapter by stressing that my questioning of discrete ontology does not amount to an ontology, or rather metaphysics, of substance per se. What I am attacking is the idea that existence is significantly related to quantifiable individuation, whether the objects thus counted are substances, events, or absolute processes. I reject the idea that to be is to be one or a one, a unified object, be it unified in itself or unified by thought, language, discursive practices, the symbolic order, the neurochemistry of what we think of as intentionality, or what have you. So that's what he's ultimately critiquing in this the end of the Kant Frege chapter, and I think in maybe chapters one and two up to that point, with the Kant Frege chapter being chapter three, is he's critiquing this tendency towards what he calls a discrete ontology. He calls it also elsewhere naive ontology. 
Um, he relates this to a tendency towards bad metaphysics, which leads to ontotheology. And the reason that's important is because the first sentence of the chapter that we're going to be talking about today is, at this point, one could argue that there are versions of set theoretical ontology that do without discrete ontology. And so that's why it's important, I think, to just just get a refresher of that final the final uh, words in the chapter before. So yeah, I think yeah. that's that's really a great way of um, contextualizing where this chapter is going, anticipating uh, an objection or at least a, a comment that the oh this sounds similar to what some people are doing in set theory, seeing as both Gabriel and um, some uses of set theory for ontology seem to have this notion of denying the totality or the all-encompassing totality. And he wants to distance himself from that in a methodological sense, sense so as to make it very clear where his project is going, uh, even though it shares this common space with um, some uses of set theory. But right. I also wanted to say, you know, I, I hadn't looked back at the last chapter and especially that last page, which I probably should have given that it sets up how this chapter uh, chapter four begins, but he mentions there that um, something like uh, to be an object is not to be a unified object, right? Yes. And you, can, you might take that as being something like an anti-realist gesture or, or I don't know, something um, very different from what Gabriel is doing. And when he says that, I don't take that as saying something like we don't get to have access to objects because they're disunified or plural in some important way or you know engaged in multiplicity in some way but instead gabriel's actually very optimistic about our epistemology about what we can know about objects compared to some contemporaries i'm taking objects not being unified meaning unified under one set of descriptions meaning something like uh, not reducible to one description that itself is sort of isolated and unified so that such that every other description of the object can be reduced to that single unified description. Is that a rejection? Is that, uh, is that a rejection of proper properties? Because doesn't he what call it proper? What's his a, definition of proper properties again? Isn't a proper property the proper that is like necessary but unique to that individual object that isolates it from other objects? So like the thing that makes this yellow highlighter that I'm holding the yellow highlighter as opposed to the black marker is that there is. Uh, at the very least, something that is unique and singular to each of them that distinguishes them? Okay, yeah. So proper properties are a property that something has which individuates it from any other object. Yeah. Yeah, so... Like the, the yellow highlighter... Existence is not a proper property. Yeah, and existence is not a proper property. Right. Yeah, I don't remember if he denies proper properties in general. Okay. I do, I do remember earlier, because this is something that's been bouncing around in my head a lot ever since I read it, because it really fits into my, my project. And I think it really fits into, as weird as it might sound, because he doesn't mention him at all, but a sort of Deleuzean critique of identity. And what I mean is, is he, uh, Gabriel makes this point earlier, and this fits into your point that you just mentioned. Um, he makes a critique earlier of the absolutely determined entity right? The entity that has like absolute determination. And I think we talked about this because he uses a Latin phrase. Um, I can't remember what it is, but it's like, uh, like omnia adequatio, something along those lines. And I can't remember what it was, but it basically, it, it translates into like absolute determination of the object. 
And then I, but I also, in Latin, it could be used to mean the real cost of the object. Do you remember this? Remember me bringing this point up and me kind of lingering uh, over this? I'm not um, sure. So the reason is because I think there's like an interesting, almost like economic logic to this. The idea that once you can determine the real cost of something, then you have kind of like simply known it as it is. There's like a balance, right? There's, um, there's a sort of like equilibrium that has been achieved. And for him, I think the rejection of individuation is a rejection of the presumption of that equilibrium that kind of just exists, right? That, that there is just this absolute determination of, uh, of objects, of individuals. And I think that is kind of the thing that he's ultimately rejecting. That's what he means when he says, what I'm attacking is that existence is significantly related to a quantifiable individuation, right? That's interesting. So is part of the idea that if you're talking about the economic sense of value, that if it's the case that objects are not reducible to like one set of descriptions, but have these fields of sense, right? Different modes of presentation in the Phrygian sense from which they can be addressed, then you're not going to be able to tie a single account of value to an object yes. and therefore are not going to have a single sense of equilibrium. It's going to yes. depend upon the mode of presentation. Yes. And I think this is so, there's so many interesting economic and exchange and, and political implications that come from this because this is essentially uh, an attack, if you will, on a, sort, a certain capitalist, bourgeois, we might say fetishized understanding of modes of exchange that, that market relations rely upon, that there is like a law of general equivalence, right? That, you know, X object is worth five and Y object is worth five and therefore they match up. Um, but that's only through this forced reduction to this quantifiable project of individuation, right? And that, that is essentially reductive, but also maybe even more importantly, it's ontotheological, which means that there is something essentially naive about the discrete ontology of capitalism that leads to an ontotheological orientation in economic exchange. Whereas someone like David Graeber in his analysis of debt and his um, anthropological theories of value, which is a book that he wrote prior to his, his big tome, Debt, and then obviously people are familiar with bullshit jobs, but he wrote a book called Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value. Uh, in that, he basically explores you know these different understandings of... Um, uh, uh, of anthropological economic exchange where things don't necessarily match up and it's maybe because they don't presume that there is this absolutely determinable cost, let's say, of these objects because there's something much more, I don't know, robust about objects as they tie into relations of kinship and as they have like their own sort of like superstitious, mysterious, maybe deep history attached to them. That's super interesting, dude. You know, I have this kind of pet project of the idea of the, the unholy trinity of empiricism, utilitarianism, and capitalism. Yes. And how they all have this theme of reduction. Yes. Um, in them. And that I think the reason why all three of them tend to go together, even though they involve different domains, right? Knowledge, morality, and then political economy, is because they they can they can find, they don't necessarily find, but they can find consonants in this reduction to a single set of descriptions under which the reality is described that's extremely reductionistic and obscures all these important parts about reality. Um, and mm. that seems to be fully consistent. That's kind of what's got me excited about this Gabriel project. It's giving me a language to talk about 
why because that's all basically saying those three philosophies are forms of ontotheology yes. um they have this single sort of project even though they're engaging with different contents or different like materials they're working with they're engaging this formally similar project and that sounds very similar to what you're pointing out here in terms of how a capitalist logic um would has to in order to work find this single set of descriptions under under which it um theorizes cost hmm and equilibrium and price and stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, we're reading through Lukash's History and Class Consciousness right now, and one of the points that he makes about scientific rationality is that scientific rationality corresponds with capitalist rationality precisely because of something similar to, I think, what we're getting at here. He doesn't adequately flesh it out. He doesn't give the meat to the bones that I think Gabriel is giving. And a lot of people would say, but that's because Marx does. I don't think Marx does necessarily either by a little bit he does, you know, in his investigation of abstraction and, um, you know, his investigation of commodity fetishism and things like that. But I think what Gabriel is doing here is a, a sort of more explicit ontological project, right? Whereas obviously in Capital, Marx isn't intentionally trying to do ontology. He's engaging in a critique of political economy. But nevertheless, I think the resources are there um, and I think that the more explicitly theoretical apparatus is given by Gabriel here that would allow it to be applied even further to a critique of political economy, to a critique of utilitarianism, to a critique of um, knowledge. Yeah, I mean, do you think that this is kind of a, a thought I've had, but I can't substantiate it because I don't know the literature as well as you do, that some forms of Marxism and their attempts to basically... I don't want to say hijack, but utilize scientific rationality, have just been unable to recognize that that's not going to help it make its case. Given that, in my mind, the virtue, one of the virtues of, of a Marxist critique of capital is going to be recognizing that fact about capitalism, that it has this reductionist tendency. And you're not going to do that or recognize that fact if you yourself are trying to use a, quasi, a supposedly or allegedly legitimated form of scientific rationality in making your critique. You're sort of getting up the game in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is that that's literally what Lukash is critiquing in the first chapter, the first essay of History and Class Consciousness. He's critiquing, you know, he's writing in 1922, comes out in 23. So uh, you can get a, a sense of the historical setting, but he's critiquing like Bernstein in particular and the notion of like uh, evolutionary Marxism rather than mm -hmm. revolutionary Marxism. And the idea is that they've embraced positivist rationality, that there is this sequential unfolding that, um, that will allow uh, the overcoming of capitalism to take place if the processes of history just simply unfold in this sequential pattern. And Lukash is saying, no, wait a second, you're embracing uh, the, the logic of capitalism and you're sneaking it in the back door by embracing positivism because it leaves you at the level of abstract fetishism it leaves you at that level of quote bourgeois rationality and therefore you've already lost and you have to then and i think this is where somebody like Bedou comes in who when he critiques democratic materialism he's making a similar kind of argument right he's saying wait a second if there are only languages and bodies if there's only a materiality if there's only this reductive way of understanding the world then we're trapped there's no way out of it. And I think we could tie that into a scientific rationality. I think we could tie that into a reductive, maybe bourgeois morality. Um, and 
rather than thinking from those lines, then Badu says, no, 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 there's not just bodies and languages, but there are truths, right? I think in the Lukashian sense, he wouldn't say that, but this is where Lukash then applies to the, appeals to the dialectic. This is where the appeal to Hegel is. You have to understand the dialectic because the dialectic is revolutionary because it is robust. It is excessive. It is filled with plenitude um, that is excessive, that is beyond just what appears to us in the forms, uh, in the categories of economic, political economy under capital. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, Hegel may be too excessive. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But uh, it sounds like Gabriel has a unique reading of Hegel that maybe he will or will not get into in this book. So we'll we'll see if that ends up being the case. But I imagine, yeah, that's going to be a a tool for understanding that. That just, again, makes it all, we were talking about this before we started recording, that this all goes back to Kant for me. The the critique of uh, instrumentalist reason that we're talking about is directly related to a Kantian revolution in the understanding of reason against uh, the empiricists in the early Enlightenment. And mm. so, yeah, and, and I know that uh, Gabriel's considering Kant, Hegel, and Heidegger as being like three main figures in his story. So it'll be curious to see if he takes that up as well in this mm. project, even though he's already dealt with Kant and talked about a point of agreement and disagreement with Kant, that Kant didn't quite go far enough in his understanding of um, the world being an all-encompassing totality. But, uh, well, yeah, we'll see if that comes up again. Cool. All right, so, yeah, so then basically the reason that the title of this chapter is Limits of Set Theoretical Ontology and Contemporary Nihilism is that the first half he's kind of saying, okay, so I've, I've laid out my critique of what he calls the discrete ontology. And he says, but, you know, at this point, some of you might be like, ah, yes, but there's this other, as this is what Troy said, ah, yes, there's this other project from Alain Badiou who he also does without a discrete ontology, and he uses set theory and a set theoretical ontology. So could we say that, okay, I get what you're saying, but is there something valuable about set theory? Is that the solution to overcoming the ontotheology of discrete ontology? And um, Gabriel says no. Why does Gabriel say no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we wanted to get into this because I thought the second half of the chapter talking about disenchantment was way more interesting. And this yeah. is basically just Gabriel saying, no, but Jew is not doing the same thing I am, even if he comes to a similar one similar conclusion. But it seems like his argument briefly is just, yeah, you can use uh, Georg Cantor and Russell and the understanding of set theory from... Uh, mathematics in the early 20th century to deny that there's an unrestricted totality, the set of all sets, right? Right. Um, and Beju does that with set theory, but Beju wants to use that notion to say, actually, set theory isn't just a formal system that's purely syntactical. Um, and that's like a tool for, you know, it's not an actual language, or it's, it's a tool for like understanding truths about reality in some way is what Beju wants to say. Mathematics as ontology, right? It's a form of doing, it just has ontological conclusions or uh, content to it in some way. And Gabriel wants to say, I agree about the unrestricted totality thing, right? But for different reasons. Uh, It's a fool's errand to go down this road of thinking that mathematics is ontology in any sense or gives you ontological conclusions or content in any way. It's just a formal system. It's purely syntactical. It's just about manipulating figures. And if you don't have any interpretations or meanings, semantic content That's in right. it, which set theory does not have, then you can't have anything philosophical because right. a whole point here is these are fields of sense, fields of meaning. 
that Gabriel is saying exist. Uh, so the fields exist and their, their content is meaning or sense or semantic stuff. And so that's denied um, in a formalist account. So he wants to distance himself strongly from that sort of project. Yeah, and it seems to me that he's basically saying that that Badiou is kind of inconsistent, or maybe he's intentionally inconsistent, but that it's not actually the set theory that grounds Badiou's ontology, but it's rather the mm-hmm. semantic content that he philosophically applies to the set theoretical formalism that really is what gives the philosophical content of Badiou's system. And he says, so what that demonstrates is that there's like a sort of front-loaded philosophical intent that uh, that is really what has given meaning to this formal system. And so that that demonstrates why it's not set theory itself that um, that is valuable in this project. But there's something else going on, right? Yeah, it seems like he even says this in the chapter that he thinks Baju's project was much better in logics of worlds, given that yeah. it kind of distanced itself from the mathematics as ontology uh, like project. Um, and... I remember reading some of Logics of Worlds way back in the day, but I don't remember too much about it other than the famous stuff like you're talking about, democratic materialism um, and the bodies and languages. No, there's also truths. And the was the four, the four procedures of truth of that Logics of Worlds or was that being an event? I don't remember. Yeah, that's being an event. Okay. So that was early on. Yeah, um, Logics of Worlds is, you know, that the, that, that there are degrees of uh, appearing. There's like the atonic world. Um, there are transcendental coordinates that compose worlds. There, that worlds are indexed right by these like transcendental by these transcendental projects, and um, the things appear in their indices based on the greater or lesser degree of kind of transcendental appearing in each world. But uh, there's this infinite proliferation of worlds, right? There's a discursive consistency through the worlds, but there's no totality, right? Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds much more in line with um, Gabriel than yeah, and he says that mathematics is ontology stuff. Yeah, 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 and he says that he's he, he says that he's like uh, there's like something really similar in that second project that fits close with with what I'm trying to do. There is a great moment though where Gabriel he's describing Beju's project and he says I think it's on let's see I have it highlighted here on page 126 he says uh, oh no it's a different page sorry I had the wrong page here. Okay, so it's on page 130. He says, his, that's Badu's insistence that no such thing as everything can exist due to set theoretical paradoxes only holds for certain interpretations of the paradoxes, not for sets in themselves, for the subtractive or whatever it is that he's trying to commit to. <laughs> Which is like the most dismissive way. <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that, that was his way of passive aggressively saying, yeah, I think that, that Badu is doing something similar to what I'm doing in Logics of Worlds, but I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, on page 123, this is where he says, um, he says, Badiou himself seems to have realized that set theory cannot be the correct answer to the question of what existence means, as he changes his view from being an event one to being an event two. So again here, it has something to do with meaning, right? As you said, the semantic content rather than just the purely formal syntactic, right? So uh, Badiou can't answer through set theory what existence means. There's some sort of philosophical projection. I'll finish this quote in a second. And it's the the reason is because he says uh, a couple pages prior to this, um, oh shit, I just lost it. Oh, here he says uh, on page 120 in the middle of the page, he says, set theory unaided by philosophical reflection does not prove anything of any importance for philosophical reflection. 
So again, it's this tension that Gabriel cites in Bedu's early work between philosophical reflection and set theory because set theory is just empty. Right? So, okay, so back to the quote where he says, Bedu himself seems to have realized that set theory cannot be the correct answer to the question of what existence means, as he changes his view from being an event one to being an event two. In his Logics of Worlds, which is being an event two, in his Logics of Worlds, he starts thinking of existence as the degree of presence of something in a world, where a world, in his sense, comes very close to the concept of a field of sense laid out in this book. However, it is far from clear how the two books can be made to cohere, and I believe that the better view is defended in volume two of the project. So that's kind of, I think, his ultimate thing there. That he thinks that, that that shift that takes place between one and two of being an event is extremely important and that whatever's taking place in two is better than what Bedu was trying to do in one. And what's better than that is what he's trying to do right now. <laughs> it yeah, seems exactly. like what he's saying, right? Is I'm yes. just doing a better job of making clear what the Jew may or may not have been trying to do in Logic's world. Yes, 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 yes. So Yeah, so I, I don't think that this excursus on Baju is super important to his project. It's more just a way of him saying, look, don't think that I'm doing this exact same thing that Baju is doing, even though right. the, th the one thing you may have heard about my project is I deny the, the all-encompassing totality, the set of all sets. Oh, yeah, doesn't that remind you of Baju? Those must be the same projects. No, they're very much not, even if they Which, have just one consonant. Which was my thought, right? Like, I it's a natural thought to have, yeah. Yeah, I often linked the two of them as doing something similar, precisely because of that. So that's why, for me, that was important to see how he delineates himself from. I mean, that's more of like an inside baseball if you're trying to navigate the debates, right? Um, which is what I what I'm doing. So for me, that's why the first half was important. But I do agree with you that it's the second half of the chapter that is the really interesting point to develop. Uh, constructively what it is that he's going to be arguing throughout the rest of the book. Yeah. And I mean, given that, you know, if you know anything about Marcus Gabriel, it may be this, the world doesn't exist, but unicorns do thing, right? Yes. So he probably is aware of the fact that there's a, there's a, there's like a catchphrase, right? For his philosophy. And he wants to make sure that's not misunderstood as being the exact same thing that several other um, figures in 20th century philosophy in both analytic and continental circles have uh, utilized in some way the, you know, anti-set of all sets thing. Right. Um, before before we get into the content of the second half, I do just want to say, and I don't know where it is because I'm, I'm just looking through right now. I don't think I highlighted it, but I think it's after like 124, 25. It must be in the second half here. There's this amazing litany that he gives. Um, oh, yeah, it's great. Where he then just, uh, he inserts toilet flushes. <laughs> He's got a little bit of Zizek in him, right? Do you know the one I'm talking about? <laughs> Yeah, I know the litany you're talking about. I also thought that that was amazingly ridiculous. But it's like it's like all everything else in the list is like serious, right? Like like, and it's all like like spatiotemporal. I mean, I guess a toilet flush is spatiotemporal, but it's all like like serious things where it's like quarks and galaxies and trees and toilet flushes and <laughs> quasars, and you're like, what the. Fuck? <laughs> How does his mind spontaneously work? It's oh, here it is. So weird. Here it is. I found it. I found it. He says, I'm far from denying that we understand many things better than they did. Electrons, atoms, evolution, galaxies, set theory, toilet flushes, numbers, biological life, plants, animals, diseases, the brain, history, and the list goes on. Which one of these is not like the other is what I would say. <laughs> 
<laughs> I honestly, can't, I honestly can't tell if he's like literally just producing a litany off the top of his head, or if he's trying to capture different categories of existence, right? Oh, of ways things can exist. Because <laughs> why would toilet flushes be one of them if not for that reason? Maybe it has to do with like the gravitational flow of water based on like magnetic yeah. poles between the northern and southern hemisphere. I don't know, man. I don't it's know. It's like thinking, what's a prototypical event, right? Of an object <laughs> that is an event. Oh, yeah, toilet flush. That's a prototypical one, flush. right? <laughs> oh, it's not Jesus. like a jump. <laughs> right. Oh, or a campaign or a game. No, it's a toilet flush. That's an event. Yeah. Everyone knows this. Fuck. Ugh. All right. So detail uh, for us what he's doing here in the second half of the chapter that you dug so much. So in the second half of the chapter, he brings up disenchantment. And basically, in my mind, just completely eradicates the notion of disenchantment that I think almost everybody takes for granted as an understanding of what the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment was. Mm. And does so in like five pages. And I don't think this is like, you know, he's you know completely uh, overturned his like a general historical account or anything. But for me, I've always taken this this sense for granted. And I think I, I've thought that there was weak that there were weaknesses in this account of disenchantment, but he kind of made it plain in a way that I don't think anybody that I've read has done before. I'm not saying this is necessarily unique to his project, but I think it both fits with his project and really um, helpful way in terms of understanding the breadth of what his thesis is, how it applies at least. And also I think it's just a really fun section of, to read. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if we're going to look back on this as being like a moment when the full breadth of what his thesis entails kind of came to light a little bit mm. from this section, but let's talk about it and we'll see how that maybe makes sense or, or maybe it's too strong of a statement. I don't know. Maybe I'm just high on this right now. No, I I literally had one of those, like, I threw my head back, and I was like, oh my god, moments. I was like, yes. Like, I, I wanted to tweet it out, but it was too long, right? <laughs> like, it because it's like two or three paragraphs. Um, uh, I think starting really on page 127 for me, 127 to 128, and I, you can see my notes. I have, in my margins, I have yes, 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 I have stars and highlights. <laughs> key with arrows but it's like just yes 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 um i i agree for me i i do i don't think you're overstating it because obviously we wrote that or we read that um essay that eugene mccarraher wrote on kind of like we have never been disenchanted right mm-hmm. and and we we liked the critique of disenchantment but we didn't necessarily love his kind of like catholic solution that well therefore we all just ought to i don't know buy into christendom or some shit like that which was we were kind of like is that kind of where he's going here you know some ontology of peace madness right um so we didn't love that but i think what gabriel does here is he provides a really sort of powerful now he doesn't give us anything to latch onto, which i think will be when he develops his uh theory for the fields of sense which might just be that the world doesn't exist but unicorns do sort of thing but i think he's going to give it substantive substantive uh, bones there but i think it, at least his critique if you will of um what he calls uh the illusory potential of self descriptions um of disenchantment narrative for me was so potent and so powerful um and i thought that i understood the stakes now of denying that the world exists the stakes of denying that the world exists 
play out in this debate between disenchantment uh, and uh, an enchantment that you get from like the scientific perspective. And that to me was the the link that was so important. I was like, oh, so the stakes of denying the existence of the world are extremely important because if you accept the existence of the world, one of the things that it could lead you to is misunderstanding through a sort of like self-aggrandizing um, self-description. And that's precisely what the Enlightenment and what he calls like uh, physicalistic nihilism does. And that was to me the thing that was so profound. Yeah, exactly. The stakes there are if the world exists in, in terms of the all-encompassing totality, then there is only one set of descriptions under which everything exists. The reductionist project is warranted, right? And if the world doesn't exist, then we've just opened up an entirely new space for a much richer understanding of everything that exists. Yeah, and I like what you and just so, said. If if the one world exists, then the project of reductionism, uh, I don't know what you said, but it, it's valuable or it has grounding. It's warranted. It's yeah. warranted, yes. Now, but then the inverse of that or – Converse, I can never remember which verse it is. Um, but <laughs> the, then that means that if the world does not exist, then it is not warranted. And that to me is a potent argument. And that is, that, that's, that's the stakes of it right there, right? Yeah, I mean, here's the thesis, right? Kant says he's, his project is to deny knowledge, to make room for faith. And a lot of people misunderstand that as being a, I'm going to like basically say we can't know certain things so that I can say faith replaces it. Like as in religion. And that's not at all what Kant meant by that. First of all, if that was your project, you wouldn't say it, <laughs> right? Because mm. um, that's basically admitting that you're a charlatan in some sense, <laughs> right? Um, what Kant means by that is that he's saying there's certain areas where theoretical knowledge cannot venture, right? Because theoretical knowledge is a, uses a certain set of descriptions, Whereas faith, and when he says faith, he doesn't mean religion necessarily. He means the sort of agential moral realm, the practical realm, right, is what uses this set of descriptions to refer to and talk about a, about reality, right? Mm. And so there's two these at least these two different, you know, one theoretical, one practical ways of dealing with reality. And so it seems to me like Gabriel's doing something similar. He's denying knowledge, namely of metaphysics, because there is no knowledge to be had of metaphysics, right? Uh, in similar same way Kant would say about the noumena, um, to make room for or to s explain how all these other kinds of descriptions uh, of, of existence and reality actually are warranted and valuable. Mm. Yes. So it's kind of a formally similar element happening here. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that Kant quote before because I've always heard of it said in the way that you mentioned it, right? That it leads to a fideism. That's kind of Mayasu's critique of Kant, right? Um, well, I mean, it would be his critique of uh, how some proponents of correlationism sort of use Kant today. His right. critique of Kant is weird. <laughs> it's not clear <laughs> if he's actually critiquing Kant sometimes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so where where do you want to go in this second half here? What what can we say to flesh out what his argument is? Yeah, so we've we've kind of like I think talked about the conclusion before we talked about the premises because <laughs> we were excited about it. <laughs> so let's just like work our way to all those big you know wide um, uh, you know like giant claims we were just making about the breadth of this thesis. So disenchantment, first of all, if you've got any familiarity with the idea of there being disenchantment of the world, it probably comes from. Max Weber, right? 
and this notion that in modernity, via things like the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, there's a disenchantment of the world. This is what Gabriel says is the common sense view that the world is ultimately meaningless, meaning not that it's sort of um, doesn't have any significance or purpose, although it does mean that it's just much more than that. There are no meanings in the world. So any description of a thing that includes purposes or meanings doesn't have doesn't have ultimate reality. It's reducible to something that's basically like matter in motion. Now, update that to the 20th and 21st centuries, matter in motion, but also understood to have quarks and bosons and uh, mm-hmm. Higgs fields and shit like that. So it's not just matter in motion. It's like, you know, quarks appearing and disappearing or whatever the fuck, right? But still, similar, uh, different content, similar form. Everything's reducible to this description made by physics or natural science or um, something along those lines, right? Everything else that's not described under those terms is unreal. It can be explained better if it's reduced to... Um, the, he references sellers here. If the manifest image is reduced to the scientific image, mm. right? Um, now, an obvious problem with that, and this I think is directly to Kant, because Kant had some similar critiques of instrumentalist reason in mind in the first critique. Gabriel says, our very discovery of this fact, this alleged fact, that everything is best understood or completely exhaustively understood under some kind of natural description, is itself semantically mediated. Because we use judgments, which have meanings, which are involved in the norms of judgment and inference and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, those are all semantic, using semantic categories, right? Um, we use judgment, basically, to discover that judgment doesn't exist in some way, right? Or like we cognitively discover that cognition is nothing other than neurons firing or something mm. like that. There's like a pull up the ladder moment that's supposed to happen with this enchantment where we use cognitive judgment to discover cognitive judgment doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't even really exist in any real way. So we pull up the ladder of of judgment and and meaning and semantics and all that and throw it away once we've gotten to the second level or whatever, which is, doesn't make sense because that means the whole project itself was undermined from the beginning, right? I mean, the ladder wasn't even there. It was broken and you fell. Mm. You think you got to the second level, but you actually broke your leg and now you're having like a, you know, crazy hallucinations about it being on top of the roof or something. This is this analogy is not going very well. <laughs> but I'm following. I'm following. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. Yeah. He has he has a quote on page 125 where he's talking about like scientific reductionism, uh, what he calls on this same page as physicalistic nihilism, um, where he says. Thus, even if there were a large stratum of facts or objects one might be tempted to call fundamental, one would still be claiming, and he italicizes claiming, one would still be claiming that there is such a stratum, an event supposedly not happening on the level of the stratum itself. So that's the idea, that even if you were to say that, oh, there is just this brute fundament of the of the multiverse, you know, time or something like that as a sort of like fundamental component. Even to do that, you're still claiming that there is such a stratum. And so there's a sort of like uh, semantic infusion that is um, eventually related, if you will, to the stratum itself, right? And so you can't, it, you can't run away from that, that there's something about um, semantic meaning that accompanies all of these investigations and that 
you know, a physicalistic nihilism isn't so much um, a pure representational description of these stratums, but it is rather, as he calls it um, on page 125? Yeah, on 125, he says that um, what disenchantment actually is isn't some scientific enlightened recognition that the world has become progressively more aware of itself or we have become more progressively aware of our world but rather he says it is an illusory self-description one that characterizes citizens of modern states right but that's it it's an illusory self-description and that's that's the issue is that the rationalization of disenchantment is a sort of self-aggrandizing self-positing um positionality that we have kind of like overcome certain restraints to maybe second nature or other like natural conditions yeah and it should be pointed out you know when he says that this sort of description is illusory he's not saying it in the same sense that some of the like contemporary religio um i don't know like 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 the the post the post-secular post-religious types yeah, like we were just talking about McCarriher, right? Right. Um, I, I'm not super, uh, haven't gone super deep into his work in that book. We just read that one chapter or article that we read, right? But it seems like there's several different um, figures from radical orthodoxy stuff to McCarriher to other stuff as well. That's kind of, they're all different in certain ways and have very different politics in certain ways. So they have a similar critique of modernity. And, and they would probably agree that in some sense, this kind of description um, that's reduced to natural science is illusory, but they mean it in the sense of it's false, right? Mm. Whereas Gabriel's not saying that it's false. He's saying the sense in which it's illusory is that it's an all-encompassing, um, exhaustive, explanatory description of reality. That's what's illusory. So Gabriel's still very much, I think, a... Um, it seems like he hasn't talked about politics or ethics or anything like that yet, but I imagine he would still consider himself in some sense a secular liberal mm. um, with probably many qualifications. Yeah, this Meaning, is... Yo, go ahead. I'm sorry. But yeah, and what I mean by that is just he still thinks as much as or insofar as contemporary natural science and physics especially is correct or it's done well or is accurate or whatever, it is accurate, right? Yes. About that field of sense. Exactly. It's not false. It is accurate. It's just not exhaustive of reality is the key. And that's the ideological component that physicalism or scientific reductionism or physics or physical reductionism, whatever term you want to use for that, adds on to um, what a sort of what would seem like an obvious understanding of, of physics and natural science is, and that it's describing reality under one set of descriptions, which Gabriel's totally fine with. Yeah, this, this is where I love the second half of the book because so many people, I've gotten into discussions online. I've got a buddy, uh, his handle is Marxist Soccer, and, and he is uh, very, very stringently opposed to religion, right? From like a very staunch, you might say, scientific naturalist perspective, right? And um, he has a few times said that he doesn't like this, this kind of like new tendency towards um, seeing certain positive sides of religion within the left, right? Within like the Marxist left. And he says that pretty much any time I ask somebody like, what's the value of this? They always just retreat back to something like, like, oh, well, just humans have this innate need to worship something. And he's like, well, I think that just really kind of like 
um, looks down upon the capacity of what the human is. He sees it as a sort of like anti-humanism in a way, right? And he wants to then speak about like um, the value of uh, of of humans, or let's say the the value of the potential of humans um, to have transcended out of these previous mystifying forms of rationality. And I was thinking about him. It's also and I, patronizing to religion too. Wait, wait, it, it, absolutely, it is right. And I think that's kind of the thing that that Gabriel is kind of. Um, really kind of giving equipment to debate because rather than saying, no, we're not just critiquing religion or critiquing like atheism. Let's say we're not just critiquing atheism. It's not just critiquing like brute atheism to then say, ah, we just have this natural innate sense to worship something. That's not what Gabriel is saying. He clearly says that, uh, he says explicitly right here, there's a quote, I am not re-enchanting here, but I wholeheartedly reject the assumption that we should either be disenchanting or re-enchanting. And um, the yeah, that's part super of, key right there. I think that's super key. And part of the reason is because on the previous page, 125, down at the bottom, he says, disenchantment is fully-fledged zoontology, a human, all-too-human projection. And that, I think, is important too. This fits into this idea of illusory self-description, that disenchantment is a kind of self-aggrandizing project rooted in the world that sees the world as flowing in a particular direction and that the world has always been the subject of inquiry from human beings, but it's based on um, the type of information and the amount of information that we have that will determine whether or not our investigation into that world is more or less accurate. Previous societies, archaic societies, the savage mind in Levi Strauss's term, they didn't have the right information. They were therefore um, trapped in enchantment because that was the only resources that they had to be able to describe the world. But now we can describe the world because we have better tools, better information, better access, better, better methodologies. And he says, no, we actually don't because we're not actually talking about the world. And if we do talk about the world, it leads to what he calls um, incoherence. And this is what the scientific image does. He says, um, the no worldview straightforwardly entails that the very idea of an all-encompassing scientific image is strictly incoherent. So therefore, the scientific image that views itself as better orientating itself to the world is actually incoherent because, and this is the next sentence, it is a remnant of just the bad kind of metaphysics modernity is struggling to overcome, which is the great irony. Modernity is struggling to overcome metaphysics, but it's entrapped within metaphysics itself precisely because of its own ontotheological orientation via scientific naturalism. And that, I think, is so right on, and I think the way that he just does this in three pages is fucking brilliant. And that's what I really like. Yeah, dude. And even rhetorically, he goes on to say that sort of capital R religion, if you're going to sort of in the Western sense, like a Christendom type of a thing that exists, the, the thing that's the object of or the content of enchantment that's supposed to happen before disenchantment, right? Um, actually has, as you said, it's, it's trapped in meta, or science, the scientific um, reductionism disenchantment program is stuck in metaphysics because it shares this formal aspect with capital R religion, the enchantment project. Right? They both want to do metaphysics. They both want to reduce everything to one set of descriptions, right? At least the enchantment project or whatever it was, because there's so many different forms of it and because it's not grounded um, in this like really obviously uh, reductionist way, it's going to have room for 
pluralvocity or something, right? Yes. There's going to be different accounts of it. Whereas the the scientific program's going to have like one language to speak, like maybe it's physics, contemporary physics, right? So it's even more prone to the dangers of metaphysics, I would think. I don't think he says that explicitly, but I would think that'd be an okay interpretation. But they share this formal aspect to the project, which I think is a really, it's both a really helpful way of understanding the perils of um, one way of viewing the scientific revolution as this reductionist program, right? Yeah. And then also for me, the most important thing is this just makes history so much more alive. And by history, I mean intellectual history. Um, why is it that we teach 18-year-old freshman Plato hmm. when anyone might say there's, there's almost no other discipline who reads ancient texts in order to get knowledge? Now, you might, again, like in a history class, ancient history class, read a text to get that knowledge of history, but it's contemporary knowledge of history, right? It's using contemporary historical tools to understand the history. But hmm. philosophy reads Plato itself for the knowledge. Like that's that's where the knowledge is located in some respect, right? as well as stuff that's contemporary. Why would you do that? Unless, as Gabriel says, you know, part of the one consequence of this view is that many ancient thinkers and writers understood things better than we do, regardless <laughs> of if they have the same tools, because we've undergone this centuries long um, project of using an acceptable and you know, uh, valuable source of knowledge, physics and natural science, but then used it in a very inappropriate way, trying to sort of use it as like a flamethrower to burn down every other um, domain of knowledge. And mm. so there's a good reason to go back to Plato and a good reason to go back to many different ancient thinkers. And I think there's one point in the text where he like this lists them off, right? I think you actually already referenced it. Um, Dostoevsky understands psychology better than some you know, scientific psychologist today and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Solomon, um, Solomon understands love better than Richard Dawkins. Yeah. Goethe, Cezanne, and Beethoven understand more about art than Daniel Dennett. You know, India, during the creation of its major creation myths, was full of people who understood more about enjoying themselves and overcoming the desire to constantly enjoy themselves than many of us, right? And then he says, the wire understands tragedy in an important way, similar to Greek tragedy, which I loved. <laughs> I knew you were going to love that. I thought about you. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, These references are so weird, dude. Yeah, and then all of a sudden Tony <laughs> Soprano and The Wire come in after talking about Queen Victoria. And I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the point of that being, and I think this is this is so rich because it means there's a there's really good reason why we go back to a lot of these sources because they really do understand certain domains of knowledge better than we do because we've blinded ourselves to those domains for some for hope of some way of understanding the world under one set of descriptions. Yes. Um, he he refers to it earlier when he's talking about Bedu and the problem of, I can't remember how you say it, if it's mathematicism or mathematicis. Yeah, math, mathematicism. Mathematicism. Um, he similarly kind of does something to here, I think, with um, uh, with uh, with science and scientific naturalism. He says, at the very least, we do not know that the inventors of what was later called religion were scientists without mathematics, let alone a decent laboratory. His point is, is that he's saying that like... Um, that there's something about uh, 
physical naturalism that kind of reduces things to this, again, discrete ontology. He, you know, talks about Russell in the last chapter about kind of like thinking from the one, right? Um, presuming the one. And then similarly here, or like the singular unit. And similarly here, you have like this tendency of, of science to mathematize, right? And then similarly with, with like formal set theory, there's a mathematicism. He actually accuses Bedou of being ontotheological and being event precisely because of this tendency towards mathematicism as well, right? That everything mm-hmm. has a sort of like consistency that is reducible to the formal logic of set theory. So again, it's always, again, you keep talking about this. It's about this reduction, this reduction, this reduction. Um, and the irony here is he says that modern nihilism is continuous with the kind of religion that it seeks to undermine. And here's where I found a bit of a challenge to my own thinking. And it's a bit up prior to that. It's because of what he calls a tacit monism. It's a tacit monism according to which everything that even so much as exists is part of a single all-encompassing domain. And that's the problem, he says, of uh, the metaphysical fundamentalism that is wrapped in the name of science. He says the problem is not science. He says this explicitly. The problem does not lie in science, but rather in that it is neither science nor really scientifically minded, but rather there's a tacit monism. And it's that tacit monism that to me... Um, is a bit of a challenge because I'm very influenced by certain monist thinkers, right? Um, this idea of like the university of being, whereas I think what he's mm-hmm. ultimately going to articulate is, you said it a minute ago, a radical plurivocity of fields of sense. I don't even want to say a plurivocity of being because that might already be too front-loaded, right? Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, a, a plurivocal conception of... Um, of reality, of uh, of of existence, or whatever it is that he's going to end up saying, and that we need to think um, against these tendencies towards tacit monisms, because that's what entraps us within metaphysics. That's what entraps us within onto theology, and that's the pitfall of. Uh, physicalist nihilism or scientism is that there's that tacit monism, and that's the key. It's that what it does as an all-encompassing domain is reduce everything to a single field of discourse or a single field of investigation or a single plane of reality. And that is the problem. Yeah, and I'd be curious where you come out on that or if you come to certain conclusions about that because in my mind, even though Deleuze does advocate the university of being, right, he does not strike me as someone you would accuse of being a reductionist. (laughs) Precisely. Um, Yeah, so how those square together because Gabriel seems to be seems to he's not saying this explicitly but it seems to be implied that any sort of monism of that sense is going to be reductionist for that reason it's doing metaphysics and so it's therefore reductionist right um you know Bedu makes a, a similar critique of Deleuze says that he does he does still think the one right this is Bedu's big critique in the clamor of being well Bedu you know rejects the existence of the one, he says, but the problem with Deleuze is that Deleuze ultimately does, even though he claims to not want to be thinking about the one, he does have a a one for him. Um, And it is precisely this fidelity to uh, Spinoza and then to university um, that entraps him uh, himself. And so, you know, there are ways, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to think through Gabriel in relation to Deleuze, but I'm very curious to get the rest of his projects so that I can position them against one another um, because I do think that there's going to be some fruitful um, kind of productive points of tension there. So, yeah. 
Yeah, because even in the Spinozist, um, kind of like really classical Spinozist way of thinking about it, yeah, you have the the, the university of of substance, right? But then yeah. attributes have a sort of similar formal flavor to this idea of of fields of sense right. that there's you know. Um, thought and extension as two different sets of descriptions for describing the one substance. Um, yeah. And then the modes, so yeah, that, and then the modes are like infinite pluralities. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's very similar. Just that there's one difference about their being, university of being at the at the center of it. So yeah, I wonder if there's, if maybe Gabriel's going because that project, like a Spinoza's Delusian project, seems distinct from the sort of reductionist paradigm that we're looking at. And critiquing that clearly has a different way of utilizing its monism, right? Definitely. So, yeah, I'd be curious to how that works. If there's something other than just the monism that's the problem here. Yeah. the The thing is, though, is sometimes in his litanies, Gabriel, I don't. He uses words like he was talking about the symbolic earlier, and I was thinking like, oh, is that a swipe at like psychoanalysis and like Zizek and stuff? And then he'll like talk about like, oh, physiochemistry. And I'm like, okay, clearly I know what he's talking about there. But then he'll talk about like discursive practices or like discourse. I'm like, oh, okay, so that's like, is that like Foucault and post-structuralism? You know? So I wonder, he doesn't explicitly engage with Deleuze. He doesn't explicitly engage with Zizek or with uh, certain post-structuralist tendencies. At least he hasn't so far. But I wonder if in his litanies, he's not giving us a key to how he would address them because he sees them all as being guilty of similar tendencies. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really seen that, but I'll look out for that as we keep going. Okay. Yeah, um where's the quote? The quote is I've got it highlighted here. Um oh maybe not. No, I can't. What's the quote it. you're looking for? Well, where he's talking about like uh like where he talks about like the the symbolic and di- uh, discursive practices and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I've, I've just noticed little things like that periodically where he'll he'll use a term and I wonder if it's intentionally trying to broaden his critique to these all of these other um, orientations, but without spending too much time just engaging them, which is kind of in a way lazy. And if you were writing like a thesis or something like that, your supervisor would be like, wait a second, what, what are you referring to here? At least give us a footnote, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> which he doesn't quite do. But um, but yeah, I wonder if even though he's engaging with a, a specific set of persons and voices, if he isn't also keeping an eye on almost like the totality of philosophy. And he's in a way kind of sideswiping a lot of them by by just simply using a very loaded term. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I imagine a good portion of that is given that he's also, he's already dealing with both analytic and major continental figures. Yes. And so there's just only so much breadth you can have. Um, right. And maybe he's just not interested in dealing with post-structuralist figures. I don't know. But yeah. If, there, if there's some swipes in there, then that seems a little bit unjustified. He's not going to actually deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess to kind of wrap up this chat, I, the thing that I really love so much about this um, second half here is that it isn't that he's denying science. What he's denying is the sort of self-aggrandizing and tacitly um, unacknowledged monism and therefore metaphysics and ontotheology of scientific naturalism and the reason is that it's ultimately question begging it's ontotheological it's metaphysical it's bad metaphysics 
and it's wedded to a conception of the world, right? The singular worldview, a totality, that there is a single domain of meaning uh, or that there's an all-encompassing concept. And, um, and I think that's the kind of key thing that he's trying to reject here. Um, and what does he call it at the beginning of the chapter? It's contemporary nihilism? That's the title of the chapter? Contemporary yeah, nihilism. The yeah. Limits of, yeah, but he really refers to it as like the disenchantment project or something like that. Yeah, in this, exactly. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think that is just such an interesting and I think important way of thinking about things. And and I'm curious to then flesh out this whole section here on page 128 and below where he says, um, so he talks about this scientific naturalism. He says basically it's question begging. He says, this view seems to be straightforwardly anachronistic and assumes what it wants to prove. Namely, that explaining phenomena presupposes that the phenomena be natural and accordingly material or physical, thunder, birth, death, and so on. Yet, scientific naturalism is still involved in mythopoiesis in the production of an overall narrative designed to explain the world and its meaning or utter lack of meaning. And then he rejects this, and then here's the following quote that I really enjoyed. He says, Generally, the fact that we have scientific knowledge and the authors of, say, Genesis or some creation myth or other did not, should not be interpreted as evidence that we understand the world better than they did for the simple reason that the world does not exist. And that yeah, that's a is, great line. <laughs> that is great. That I love. That's where one of my yeses is next to. And then he says, However, I'm far from denying that we understand many things better than they did. Electrons, atoms, evolution, galaxies, set theory, toilet flushes, numbers, biological life, plants, animals, diseases, the brain, history, and the list goes on. But who would deny that Solomon might have understood more about love than Richard Richard Dawkins? Or that Goethe... Undeniably. <laughs> right. Or that Goethe, Cezanne, and Beethoven understood more about art than Daniel Dennett, etc., etc. And this is then when he talks about, um, like, Tony Soprano as well. Uh, and how they understood tragedy and shit. He says, But my point is quite simple. You need not live after the alleged real-life historical event of the scientific revolution in order to be able to know many things better than someone maximally informed about the current state of knowledge in the natural sciences. There is no reason to believe that actual knowledge about the laws of nature changes our overall framework of knowledge in such a profound way that we somehow become more rational and less enchanted. Yeah, I think the the idea there of becoming more rational by doing a reductionist project is right in line with that idea that um, a more robust account of what it means to be rational is needed. Yes, 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 this yes. This is a very uh, reductionistic, instrumentalist account of reason that's being used um, in that assumption. Mm. And so, if we're gonna if we're gonna overturn that assumption, it's gonna mean reunderstanding what reason is, mm. what it means to be rational. And then I, I love this because, remember, we kind of talked, I think, in some messages, but he, I think I said it, and you said, oh, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. And now he explicitly kind of confirmed what my intuition was, and it's this line right here. Overcoming ontotheology for good is indeed the aim of this book because I believe that it is still the most widespread overall assumption in professional and common sense philosophy. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what you were anticipating and hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I fucking love that intention. Yeah, so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just to to end here, I wanted to point this out before we move on. There's a 
quote at 129 near the end where he makes a, it seems like a pointing towards where he's going to go in some respect. He says, um, science in the eminent singular does not exist either in addition to the, the all-encompassing set of all sets. Mm. It is the epistemological equivalent of the world, yet another totalizing fantasy we inherited from tradition and simply need to give up in the name of modernity. Mm. So um, again, the nod there to where I think he would consider himself in some sense a secular liberal, right? In the name of modernity, we need to mm. get rid of science, ironically, right? And that scientific practice, which I take as this a reference to this instrumentalist account of rationality, right? Uh, given he's talking about it's science in the epistemological sense, um, not as like a body of knowledge, but a way of getting knowledge, um, is like the world, uh, this fantasy, illusory, all-encompassing totality. Science is, science in quotes, is a, or scientism or reductionism or whatever, is also a fantasy that's um, obscures a lot about how we know things. And so we need to get rid of it. So there's both a, ontological or metaphysical um, pluralvocity that he's getting to here by denying the capital W world, but also an epistemological pluralvocity or something um, that he's getting to by denying capital S science or scientism or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I really like this idea of in the name of modernity, that there's something about how the modern project wasn't modern enough, you know? Um, and that it yeah that, there's a tension there's a really big tension in the middle of it yes 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 yeah well cool well i think i mean that's pretty much that chapter right um yeah yeah so who knows yeah so, I think we can we can end there yeah and then the next one's gonna i think is this where he starts to now build positively the next chapter is called domains of objects and fields of sense i think this is where he's going to start maybe constructively now offering an alternative to ontotheology, yeah? Yeah, so I think the critical portion is mostly complete, which is probably why that last half of the last chapter was felt epic because it's kind of the summation of the critical part of the book. Yeah. Agreed. Well, cool, man. Yeah, no, this book is, um, I really am enjoying it. It's very strange in some ways because we've talked about kind of the <laughs> writing style. But in terms of what he's trying to do, you don't read a lot of philosophical projects like this, the, the kind of system, right? Like the full, I'm building a new system thing. And uh, it really just fucking, I don't know, it incites my passions, man. Yeah, it's very clear how the breadth of this project is going to seep into every area of philosophy. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't care so much about ontology, right? But thinking about the ethical and political consequences of this kind of view um, is exciting in and of itself. Which is, you know, the great system builders in philosophy, the ones that we cared about in the first place, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the main segment there and jump into our sticky leaves, yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right, so the sticky leaves segment of the episode is when one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a, according to uh, scientific reductionism, a meaningless universe. But we all know that's false, right? <laughs> so, Austin, where is your meaning this week? All right, time for some more man pampering advice. You ready? <laughs> okay. 
Uh, and this one, I mean, a lot of my other suggestions, you know, you know, the manuka honey, argan oil, stuff like that, you know, women can obviously use as well. But this one, I'm going to say that generally people who take care of their bodies are probably more accustomed to doing this already because, you know, they oftentimes get manicures and pedicures. So if you're already accustomed to getting a pedicure, you're going to be like, yeah, dude, duh, we know this. But let me just say this. Most dudes are brutes. And we don't get taught this stuff from a young age. But I will remember this. My father once, I think about maybe 10 years ago, uh, said to me, he's like, Austin, you know, he's in his, he's now he's 60, but you know, he was like turning 50 at the time. He's like, make sure that you always take care of your teeth and your feet. And I was like, to me, I was like, well, duh, dude, I brush my teeth and floss, bro. Like, what are you talking about? But I never really thought about the feet thing so much. And a lot of times what can happen is dude's feet can become gnarly. They can get dry. They can get athlete's foot. They can get cracked. You can get toenail fungus, whatever else it is, right? So one of the things that I really enjoy, and I do it now, I would say, at least once, sometimes twice a week, is I will give myself a foot bath. And what I'll do for the foot bath is you basically just use some really nice warm to hot water and then you put in some tea tree oil, right? Depending on how much water you put in the basin or however big your bowl is or whatever it is that you're using to soak your feet in will determine how much uh, tea tree oil you use. But throw in some dots of tea tree oil, some drops, I mean, of tea tree oil in there. You know, a good amount, a good amount. Um, And then... Because tea tree oil can dry your feet out, so you don't want to just expose your foot to the tea tree oil because it is a poison. It's very strong, antifungal properties and all those other things. But then what I like to do is just a couple pumps of argan oil. So I, And the reason I use the argan oil is because the argan oil isn't um, as uh, – it, well, one, it's non-comedogenic, so it won't clog your pores as much. But also it doesn't leave the slick. That's why I use it on the face too, right? It doesn't leave that oily, greasy slick on your feet like other carrier oils will do. So I'll put a couple pumps of argan oil in there, and then I just soak my feet for about 30 minutes while I'm reading. Matter of fact, last night while I was reading chapter four of Marcus Gabriel, my feet were soaking in a tea tree oil <laughs> slash argan oil bath. And then- No wonder it was such a euphoric experience for you. It was, it's the best, man. My feet are all warm and cozy, and I'm kind of just taking care of it. But, so then what you do is you clean your feet, you do that deep cleansing, you fight against any, like, odors, you fight against any, like, foot fungus or, like, athlete's foot or anything like that. Um, and then at the same time, you're also getting that nice moisturizing help from the argan oil. So, dudes, do it. I'm telling you, it's a good thing. We oftentimes think we don't have time, whatever. Look at that. I was multitasking. I just set up the little bucket underneath my desk while I was reading. So you can do it while you're watching a show, (laughs) while you're doing some reading, whatever. And then you've got, you know, some nice moisturized and healthy and non-smelly feet. So that's what I would say. Um, Also, I would just say tea tree oil is good. It's good disinfecting. You can get tea tree oil sprays. You can spray your shoes with it. Um, or you can just take, like, if you don't have the spray, you can just take like little drops of it and just put them in your shoes, just like drop a little bit in your shoe and then the, um, and let it like do its thing overnight and the vapors and things like that will, will help to cleanse and to sterilize. So that's my tip. Take care of your feet, gentlemen. It's important. You don't want to have fucked up feet when you get older. I've been really obsessed over the past like year with the toe bro on YouTube. Do you know who the toe bro is? No. Yeah, it's gross. The toe bro <laughs> is basically he's a podiatrist and he like 
trims people's nails and takes care of their weird like their weird like foot problems and sometimes it's like really gnarly like toenail fungus or like ingrown toes or like all kinds of weird things on people's feet and it's like one of those weirdly fascinating gross medical youtube channels but he's like really sweet and sometimes you get like these dudes that are like 80 years old or these women that are like 80 years old and they're in retirement homes and like nobody's trimmed their nails in like a year because they can't reach themselves and maybe they have like dementia or like, you know, like Alzheimer or, or they just can't physically reach and, uh, and they're embarrassed. So they look like Deleuze, basically. What's up? So they look like Deleuze. <laughs> he did have some gnarly nails, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but so like, but their their toenails are all fucked up and shit like that. And so then finally, like someone, like one of the nurses or one of the 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 women that works there, or one of the dudes, like the orderlies, and like notices it, and they're like, "Hey, we got to take this person in to get their toenails trimmed." And then the Tobro doctor is like, "Hey, you know, let's try to make sure we get these people in here because this is uncomfortable for them and it sucks, and you don't want the toes to get all fucked up because it can cause pain, but it can also spread to other areas of the body and create other complications." So. You know, let's just do our best to create good habits, and it doesn't take that long, and it doesn't take that much effort, and it doesn't cost much money, so just do that. Also, Epsom salt is another good one that people do to soak their feet. Um, you know, just take care of your feet, peeps. So that's mistake. What is, I've, I've heard of Epsom salt. How is that different than regular salt? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, they just say it, so I trust Okay, it. but it's supposed to be like a – is it antifungal or is it – What's the deal? Yeah, it, it is. And it also helps with like um like moisturizing for whatever reason. And I don't know why. Okay. I've I've read this before. I've just never used it personally. Cause uh, I've kind of just found that I enjoy plus I've got it. You know, I've got the supplies, so I can double up. I can use the argan oil as like a daily moisturizer and then I can just spray a, a few pumps in that tub of water, right? So mm-hmm. so I don't know. I've never used the Epsom salt one. But I'll do it one of these days, I'm sure. So but yeah. That's and it. then report back in a new sticky leaves. That's right. That's right. I will. That uh, we'll keep adding. There should be like uh, maybe on our website we should just put like a list of like healthcare tips, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, weirdly placed if you don't know the context. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah, dude. I w- I will say as 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 nowhere near the um like health and fitness uh guru that you are there's nothing worse than a gross foot so it sucks take care of your damn feet well and it sucks too because especially if you like shower in gyms and you know if you play sports your whole life you're gonna get athlete's foot at some point it just fucking happens right and it's itchy and then if you don't take care of it it gets all cracked and it hurts and then it can turn into toenail fungus and that kind of sucks and that's so stubborn and impossible to deal with and you know it's just it fucking blows, man. And, you know, your feet are all sweaty. And we're not, like, taught this usually. We're not taught this on no, average. definitely not. You know? But, like, like I used to just fucking walk around in my Chuck Taylors without socks. There's, like, my feet aren't breathing. They're all <laughs> sweaty. And I'm not wearing socks. And Because, you know, it was, like, cool to look a certain way. And, yeah, it's just a fucking breeding ground for sweaty fungus and shit like and then of course you know you're showering um at the gym or you're walking around barefoot and you just just don't develop good habits so it's important to make sure you take care of that shit yeah yeah plus like i think the thing that that my dad was saying because you know he was 50 ish when he was telling me that before 
I think the thing that he was really getting at is like, dude, like you may be invincible in your 20s and even into your 30s, but once you start getting into your 40s, you start to see, oh, shit's breaking down. And then in your 50s, it gets worse. And in the 60s and 70s, it's worse. The body's going to break down anyway. We don't need to contribute further to the accelerating breakdown of our body, <laughs> you know? So let's do the best we can to fight entropy. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that's great advice. Definitely. I I had athlete's foot when I was in college, I think for like a year. And yeah, I hadn't, this is, I think pre, um, it was the obviously pre, uh, YouTube and an easier way to solve all your problems is just to Google it. Like it was before that. So it was very difficult to figure out what to do. Oh yeah. And it's stubborn as fuck. It's so stubborn. Yeah. And if you don't stay with it and if you don't change your shoes or change your habits of wearing shoes, then it's just going to come right back. And then of course, if you're continuing to like shower in a gym and you're not wearing sandals or fuck, even if you are wearing sandals, that shit spreads, you know? So it's so fucking frustrating. Um, and just the way that we live in community, it makes me think though, like, so we get all pissed off about like, Oh no, I've got like a athlete's foot. Fuck, you know, people are going to think I'm a troll or something like that. I wonder if like archaic societies that they just fucking walked around in the mud without shoes for so long. Like, did they just have gnarled feet or? Oh, they all, everyone looked like Shaq's foot. Have you seen Shaq's foot? No, is it gross? Go I mean, if you're, if you have a strong stomach, Google Shaq's feet or something like that. It's the grossest thing you've ever seen in your life. There's nothing worse than a gross foot like that are you doing it right now yes <laughs> oh my god bro <laughs> what the fuck oh dude that's so gross <laughs> wow yeah that is so and his toes all fucking turned in too <laughs> that's what happens when you have size 24 feet and you don't take care of them oh jesus man that is so gross so gross yeah Oh, man. Oh, dude. I'm just looking through all... Yo, so Tobro is like... It's like that, but even worse. Like the stuff that oh, he man. deals with. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like oddly satisfying when he gets there and in there and cleans it all out and buffs it all out. And The sad thing is is that a lot of the people that he's dealing with, like I said, they're older and they... um. They're never going to have normal toes again. You know, it's not like they're ever going to have like the pretty shiny. They're not going to be foot models. But the sad thing is, is that a lot of them, you know, you can tell that they've just been suffering with this for like fucking years, years. Yeah. And no one like told them that they could go and get that taken care of. No one helped them before it got to that stage. And so now they are embarrassed. Like how many years were they embarrassed? Were they wearing fucking socks with their sandals because they didn't want to have their feet out in public? Or how many years did they just like hide their toes or, you know, never, like what did they restrict themselves from doing? Like not go to the beach because they didn't want to take their feet off. Like that's the thing that I'm like, oh fuck man. So there's no shame and there's guilt and that affects your mental health. And it might sound little and silly and vain, but it's not because that shit adds up when that's one of 10 other things that you're also worried about. You know, we don't need more more of that shit so that's the stuff that makes me sad so. yeah dude exactly 100 percent. so yeah yeah so one if you've got a strong stomach watch tobro but two most importantly <laughs> take care of those damn feet <laughs> and it just feels good and you feel fancy when you're sitting there with your feet in a, a little pedicure toe bath so yeah bath. nothing like being able to show off your nice feet right? that's right you never know when quentin tarantino's nearby and admiring them that is right <laughs> All right, sweet, man. Well, I guess we should go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah.
All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you uh, have any questions or any comments or anything like that, you can tweet us, owls underscore at underscore Don. Of course, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, let us know what you're thinking about the Gabriel book. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on it, feel free to contribute. Um, definitely, especially on Twitter, because then we can retweet it and we can kind of like get other people involved who, who maybe aren't already aware of this reading group. Um I'm finding it extremely rewarding. I really can't wait to like get through this project and then figure out what I can do productively with this kind of with my own work. Um, but I feel like it's going to I know we may use this term a little loosely, but I feel like it's going to be a game changer in a lot of ways, um, at least for um, kind of maybe correcting certain tendencies that I've even noticed in other ideas that I've been engaging with and then maybe even in my own work. So I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah, I say it all the time, dude, but it feels like doing the seminar kind of format, which we're doing, obviously it's just the two of us, but it's a kind of seminar format in terms of the close reading and the connecting to other literature and stuff and doing that. But with you, and given that we've kind of grew up philosophically together, I think we have this kind of like cognitive bond or something. Hmm. Um, and then also on texts that we choose ourselves rather than are assigned to us. It's hmm. like the perfect, it's the perfect, um, you know, chemistry for, kind of groundbreaking discovery theoretically yeah i always had the fantasy of having like my own francis schaefer labrie kind of place you know Mm -hmm. and we kind of have that digitally with this podcast you know it'd be better in person though fuck in the mountains in switzerland (laughs) yeah man with some nice warm beers oh i dig that oh one day (laughs) (laughs) all right uh thank you guys so much for tuning in i think that's pretty much it man unless there's anything else you got to say just one more thing i can think of dude what's that das vidanya americanski